If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, that's page 951 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a good Bible, a good English Bible even, we would love to give that to you as a gift this morning. We'll be in John chapter 9, the whole thing. Our family started a new book series called The Wingfeather Saga. Has anybody read it? Well, one person. But it seems like we kind of know about it. It was written by singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. You may know one of his songs, Is He Worthy? If you're not familiar with the books, you might think of something in the vein of Narnia. He's created this world. He's written this beautiful narrative. And like the best storytellers, Peterson grabs you by the imagination And he stirs in you a longing for all that is good and beautiful and true. And like the best storytellers, he reminds you that all is not good and beautiful and true. We're mostly through the first of four books. Our kids love it. Like, they can't get enough of it. It's the most uh, thematically heavy book that we've read. It's also been turned into a TV show that we've been watching And again, our kids love it. They want to watch it every single day. The episodes have brought us and them to tears and joy, tears and sadness, tears and fear. My little girl sometimes will shake and cling to me as they long to see evil, the evil in the book's world expelled. Now, they're they're not used to reading books with such heavy themes. You know, they're reading like uh, Dr. Seuss. And so it prompts a lot of questions. Pavy, in particular, our five-year-old daughter, she asks me a lot of why questions about the book. And in fact, the other day on the way home from church last Sunday, she would just hit me with question after question. She's asking the same question through different questions. She asked me, why are there fangs? These, these are the bad people. She's asking, why do they want to fight the Igbies? Just like the good family. Why does Nag the Nameless want to hurt everyone? Why did Slurby hurt their dog Nugget? Why isn't their daddy around? Why was there a great war? She's asking, why is there so much darkness? She asks better than she knows. I tell her, Pavey, the best stories have struggle. What's evil tries to destroy what's good. And we often feel like what's evil will win, but goodness always wins out in the end. It taps into what's real and what we hope is real. And I tell Pavey, it's odd, but we tend to be happier after we've been sad. J.R.R. Tolkien put it much better than me by the lips of Samwise Gamgee at the end of Two Towers. You maybe have read it or seen the film At the end of the second book, it feels like there's no hope for their mission, as though all the darkness has been gathered and they will not overcome it. A little light turns on for Sam. He tells Frodo that he gets it. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could they end happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. 
and when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something even if you were too small to understand why. The best stories tap into something that's real. They create a hope in you for something that's better even as you stare at what's bleak. Christians, unlike anyone, we should understand that we find ourselves in the greatest story. One that's true. Filled, yes, with darkness and light, with goodness and evil, with heartbreak and happiness, with an enemy and a hero. And as Christians, we know more than simply that the world is broken. We know why. Not simply that all things will be made new. We know how. John chapter 9 gives us the story of humanity in microcosm. There's darkness and light. There's heartbreak and healing. God's Son, heaven's hero, the light of the world, steps down into the darkness to make all things new. The story pulls us in, reminds us that things are not as they ought to be. And it reminds us that things are not as they always will be. The night will give way to the day. John 9 puts our suffering and the suffering of the world in perspective. Pain is real and the promises of God are better. And Jesus is the remedy. His coming and his healing of us changes not just our understanding of the story, but our part in it. Keep that in mind as we read the text, John chapter 9. The entire chapter is quite long. If you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the light of the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Shalom and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Now the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. 
The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received his sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees. And we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them, that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not of God or from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning, quite simple. Jesus came to heal the world of its sickness. Jesus came to heal the world of its sickness. Jesus came to heal the world of its sin-induced sickness. He's the only remedy. Three points of application then from the text in our big idea. Christian, do the works of God with urgency. Preach the gospel of God with honesty. And worship the Son of God with humility. Seeing that Jesus is the only remedy for our sickness and sin, do the works of God with urgency, preach the gospel of God with honesty, and worship the Son of God with humility. First, do the works of God with urgency. This is precisely what we see Christ doing. You see there verse 1 in the text. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, the last time we saw Christ, he made this staggering claim about himself that he is the light of the world. Israel's God, the great I am of the burning bush, 
come to reveal God and the way to him. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 3, 13, the Pharisees basically say, prove it. John chapter 9, the proof. The light of the world gives the gift of sight to one born blind. You can really preach the entire book of John from this one chapter. Think about this scene in light of the prologue. John 1.9, the true light of the world came to him. John 1.10, the man does not recognize Jesus. He can't even see him. John 1.11, the leaders don't receive him. John 1.12, the blind man will believe and become a child of God. John 1.14, the man born blind sees the glory of the one and only son from the father and worships him. John 1.18, the man who has never seen anything comes to see the unseen father in the son. He's revealed him. John 1. 18. Jesus will do what only God can do. Bring a man from the blindness of sin to sight in the sun. He will go from seeing nothing to seeing God. This is our story. Augustine rightly notes this man is all of humanity. Verse 1, again, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. To state what is quite obvious, the only person seeing here is Jesus. This man is not looking for Jesus. He's certainly not looking at Jesus, and yet Jesus sees him as he was passing by, as everyone else was passing over. Jesus sees him. Jesus sees the man who cannot see no doubt he spent his life longing to look and feeling overlooked. It's easy to feel like when we suffer that God has overlooked us. He's too busy for our pain. Uninterested perhaps in what afflicts us. Doesn't care about what's going on. Can't help for whatever reason. We feel like I don't see him and I don't know if he sees me. God sees you in your suffering. He created you. He puts you where you are. He draws near to you. He notices you when no one else does. His eyes are fixed upon you with all the power and love that drove him to make you and remake you. You may not see Jesus. He sees you. He has never taken his eyes off of you. Like a mother staring at her newborn or a groom at his bride, Jesus' eyes are fixed upon you and they are full of love. Jesus sees those who cannot see him and he draws near to them. You can almost picture Jesus gazing upon this man in pity. You see the compassion welling up in his eyes as one of his own dwells in darkness as he sits in sorrow, as he hurts in need of healing, Jesus is seeing him. And his gaze is broken by the clanging of his disciples. So like, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? They say there are no stupid questions. Well, this is common understanding at the time. The disciples rightly understand that there's a relationship between sin and suffering. That suffering is the consequence of sin. 
Apart from sin entering the world, there would be no pain. There would be no suffering. Every baby would make it out of the womb. Every child would be healthy. Every one of us would dwell in safety. Everything, and I mean everything, would be right. This is not the world we dwell in. Thieves steal, rust destroys, our loved ones hurt us, our enemies seek to kill us, our bodies fail us. Life until death is marked by pain. The Christian, more than anyone, should be aware, acutely aware of pain because we know what we were made for and we know the reason we don't experience it, which is sin. So they rightly get that all of suffering, broadly considered, is a consequence of sin. They wrongly draw too tight of a connection between the two. They think suffering must be punishment for his sin, maybe his parents' sin. Now, no doubt, sometimes, often even, we suffer as a direct consequences of our sin. You spend a lifetime abusing alcohol or drugs, you're going to wreak havoc on your body, your soul, your relationships. If you indulge in destructive sin and all sin is destructive, things are not going to work the way they ought to. And yet not everybody's suffering is tit for tat because of their sin. Jesus responds, verse 3, in a way that surprises them, neither this man nor his parents sinned in such a way that this is the consequence is what he means. This should be a caution to us from assuming we know why other people are suffering or struggling. We tend to think that when other people are suffering, it's because they've done something wrong to God. And yet when we suffer, it's because God is doing something wrong to us. Of course, we want to deal with the root of suffering. It's often sin. But our first impulse should be not to speculate or condemn, but rather like Jesus, to see them with compassionate eyes and to move in with hands of helping. The better question the disciples could have asked was, how can we help this man? Not, what did you do to get in here? Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He gives an answer that shocks them, probably shocks us more. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Don't pass over this. Who brought about this man's blindness? Decades of sorrow, of brokenness, of frustration, of neediness, of begging, of loneliness. Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? Their question comes off calloused. Don't hear Jesus' answer that way. With compassion, he says, no, it was me. They understand as a Jew who has read and understood their Old Testament that God is the one who has sent this. They assume God has sent it to do him harm. God has sent him to bring him greater good. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. This verse confronts us with an issue we won't resolve in this sermon. It's not my intention to. It's one we won't fully grasp on this side of glory precisely because we're not God. How can God both hate what befalls us and send it upon us? How can God hate the death in my womb, the cancer that took my spouse, the storm that wrecked my house, the sin that robbed me of my possessions? How can he be opposed to it 
and yet purpose it for my good. He indeed purposes it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. To put it in terms that will make sense, but we won't like to hear, why did God knit this man together in the womb in such a way that he would not be able to see? Lamentations chapter 3 nicely captures this paradox or tension, verse 32 and 33. The weeping prophet writes, even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Jeremiah is saying that God causes suffering he doesn't enjoy to bring. So why does he send it? Jody Erickson Tata, she's a quadriplegic. She was struck with quadriplegia at the age of 17 in a diving accident. She's in her 70s now. She nicely summarizes this text in Lamentations 3. She spent most of her life in constant pain. She says 10 words changed the way that she understood her suffering from the time that she was young until now. She writes, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Importantly, we need to understand that God is not the cause or author of evil in such a way that makes him morally culpable. We sinned and brought suffering into the world. We opened the door. God, in his mysterious providence and kindness, sends suffering through the door to accomplish what he loves. Can we fully understand how? No. Can we trust him? Absolutely. Importantly, the end or goal of suffering is not more suffering. It's wholeness. It's happiness. It's eternal life with God in Christ. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. No sane person likes pain. Okay, when you burn your hand on the stove, you don't yell, yes, I did it again. Notch it on the belt, you know. No, you go, you put it under cold water, you're upset. You put mustard on it. I don't know. There's, there's some gals in our body that do that. If you know, you know. No, you freak out. And yet without the gift of pain, you would keep your hand on what would destroy it and you. Pain serves as an alarm bell telling you something isn't right. My hand was not made for this heat. Get help now. Suffering is intended to serve as an alarm bell for the Christian, pain here reminds us of sin's sting. It ought to cause us to lift our gaze to heaven and to long for its coming. We were not made for this. God in his kindness uses it for our good to remind us we were made for heaven. But can he really use suffering and evil for the good of his people? There's no clearer sign than the cross the most wicked act in human history brings about humanity's salvation. Heaven's greatest loss becomes the world's greatest gain. 
What we intended for evil, God meant for good. Consider the crossing. Consider this man born blind. We don't see anybody else in the chapter believe. Not his neighbors, not his parents, not the religious leaders, not the bystanders. The one person who understood how great his need was, was the man who begged every single day of his life. The one person who understood that he was spiritually blind, get this, was blind. The one person who came to believe in Jesus was the one man whose eyes were opened. Was his suffering worth it? Imagine getting to heaven and asking him, was it worth it? Suffering for those 30 or 40 years to come to see Jesus, did, did God use it? He probably had to think to remember it. Oh, yeah. His blindness at this point is a distant shadow now that with his eyes he gazes upon the glory of God. His suffering is eclipsed to that which it led to. You're like, okay, you ask somebody else. You lost your spouse to cancer. Was it worth it? I know this sounds silly, but I almost forgot about it. Now that I walk hand in hand with the groom of heaven. You asked someone else, you were so young when your father abandoned you. Was somehow your suffering worth it? To have to think about it, it's hard to think about my temporary father now that I have found myself under the protection of the Father in heaven. Is it worth it? Losing temporary sight to gain eternal vision of God, it is. We can trust that our sovereign king and loving father has numbered our hairs and lets not one fall to the ground apart from his will. And when it does fall, it is for our good. A good that completely eclipses our suffering. It's as Paul tells us, our momentary light affliction is producing. It is leading to, it is in a sense necessary for, it is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory is it worth being physically blind for a little while to gain eternal sight of god it's incomparable paul says does it make our suffering easy no is it worth it absolutely importantly god never takes from us to rob us he takes from us to give us something better Temporary blindness for eternal vision of God. He gives us himself. It's like upsetting your child by taking away their goldfish only to give them steak and potatoes followed by molten chocolate cake. The suffering is real. It's momentary. It's light. It's brief compared to the joy that will last forever. Our suffering, it ought to function like an alarm bell driving us to Christ, reminding us that things are ruined because of sin. That our only remedy, our only help, our only healer is Jesus. And our neighbor's suffering. It ought to function like an alarm bell in our own minds, driving us to them with Christ. Jesus goes on, he explains what he's doing, verses 4 and 5, we must do the works of him who sent me while this day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as, I am in the as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Jesus seems to be saying that his time on earth is coming to a close. Night, that is his death, is coming. His works, while he's there bodily on earth, will cease. It creates for him a sense of urgency. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Christ has ceased his working. He works through the saints. He tells his disciples in John 14 that they will do greater works than these. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus continues to act and to teach through the church. We should feel the same urgency as Jesus, knowing that the world is sick, that Christ is our only remedy, that our time is limited, that our lights will one day go out. For someone else, it might mean that they will sit in darkness. I would encourage you to think about even today who you know that if you died, they probably would not hear about Jesus again. It should create urgency for us. Brothers and sisters, when you see suffering in the world, especially in the lives of those who are near you, rather than passing by and passing over, we should be reminded, alarm bell, they need Jesus. God has actually sent them suffering as a gift to help them feel the sickness of sin. This is not what they were made for. To remind them that all is not right, that their longing for healing, for wholeness, for beauty, for truth is natural and it finds its answer in heaven. And God has sent you to help them understand that they can be healed by Jesus. A great way to put yourself in position to preach the gospel to those who are suffering is by first serving them. Jesus sees the man, he moves in with urgency. Verse 6 and 7, look at the text. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now, I don't know about you. If I were going to try to heal somebody's eyes, I probably wouldn't put dirt on them. Jesus tends to work in ways that astound us, not in the ways that we would think that he would. I was recently watching a video of a man, he's the son of a prominent, faithful preacher who you would know, and he was mocking this scene just for how absurd and stupid and humiliating he said it was. Humiliating that Jesus would spit on dirt, make mud, and rub it on his eyes. What we see in this text is incredibly humiliating. But not for the man. It's humiliating for God, who stooped down from heaven, took on the frailty of flesh, is here rubbing mud in his hands to then touch a sinful man. God is the one who is humbled. This man is humanized. Unable to lift his eyes to heaven, heaven comes to him. God draws near and touches his face. Can you imagine the last time somebody touched his face? From on high, he's come down low to lift us up who are lowly. But why the mud? It seems like an allusion to Genesis 2-7. God forms man from the dust of the earth. Here now the creator, the potter, is making clay to remake that which is broken. It's anything but humiliating. We are 
We were, we are, and we will be his great handiwork. Broken, yes. Disposable to God, no. He came and with his hands he fixes us. He, the maker, remakes man. Jesus then sends him to wash and the water's blind. He comes out seeing it's all of grace. Jesus finds the man. Jesus sees the man. Jesus heals the man. Jesus sends the man. He's not asked for anything. Jesus commands him to go and to wash, and in simple faith, the man obeys. Jesus acts with urgency as he sees pain in the world. It's why he came. The man obeys with simple trust. We continue with the man. We'll pick back up with Jesus later. The formerly blind man is going to give us a lesson in evangelism. We ought to preach the gospel of God with honesty. We preach the gospel of God with honesty. The reason it's a struggle to be honest is because there are often repercussions for sharing the gospel, as this man will come to see firsthand through a series of interrogations. If you look at the text, verse 8 and 9, we see his neighbors are arguing about him. They're like, is this the blind guy? What's happened is so inconceivable that some are like, no, this can't be him. Looks like him, not him. He does not change his appearance at all. At least like Superman, Clark Kent, put the glasses on. Same guy, his eyes are working. He's like, no, it's, it's me. Verse 9, he kept saying, I'm the one. They're like, I know you from somewhere. I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> He's like, I spent my life right there begging. No, that's, we must have went to school together. It's so inconceivable. They ask him then, verse 10, how then were your eyes opened? This really becomes the focal question, not who, but how. How were your eyes open? He gives an honest, simple answer. The man called Jesus, he's come to know his name at this point. The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Shalom and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. We move now from the neighbors to the Pharisees. They want help understanding what's going on. Understandably, they take it to their religious leaders. Verse 14 Verse 14, John gives us important context. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. John really buried the lead on this one. It's the Sabbath. Work is prohibited. This is similar to what we saw in John chapter 5. Disciples are thinking, we really got to get this guy an iCal. Jesus knows what he's doing, when he's doing it, why he's doing it. This whole scene in particular is going to highlight just how spiritually blind mankind is. As the leaders of Israel fail to recognize God before them. So he's before the Pharisees now. They ask him, verse 15, they ask him again how he received his sight. He says, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I can see. A simple, honest answer. Verse 16 then captures tension that divides the group. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Jesus, again, as we saw in chapter 5, is being accused of being a Sabbath breaker. Now, in the tradition of the elders, this is not Old Testament law. It's their interpretation of it. You couldn't heal on a Sabbath unless it was life or death. It's like your friend breaks his femur. You're like, man, that sucks. We'll have to wait until Sunday. Can't heal. You also couldn't need 
Okay, not N-E-E-D, but with K. You couldn't knead. So here comes Jesus along. He makes mud pies. He kneads with his hands, offense one, and then he heals a guy who isn't dying, offense two. In their minds, Jesus is a lawbreaker. Now, to be clear, Jesus has not broken the Sabbath. Calvin helpfully explains that the Sabbath commanded Israel to rest from the works of men, not the works of God. Jesus tells us, verse 4, he's simply doing the works of God while it is day. And as we saw in chapter 5, Jesus tells them, like, whatever, you know, Moses math you got to do to exclude God from the Sabbath command, you just go ahead and apply it to me because I'm God. So some think he's broken the Sabbath. Other fairies are like, how could a sinner heal a man? Keep going back and forth. Verse 17, again, they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He responds in a way that's honest and simple and makes sense. He's a prophet. Verse 18, they think the guy is lying about being born blind, so they call his parents. His parents don't say much of anything because they're afraid of the Pharisees. They call him back again, this time not to interrogate him. They want him to recant. They want him to acknowledge that Jesus broke the Sabbath. Okay, he healed you, sure. We need you to call him a sinner. Verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're basically telling him, in the presence of God, your holy maker and judge, acknowledge that this man is a blasphemer. Call him a sinner. The irony, of course, by calling Jesus a sinner, you're blaspheming against God. The man responds again with an honest, simple answer. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. Think about who he's being cross-examined by. These are Israel's most educated, most highly trained, most knowledgeable people in the law. This guy has spent his life begging for food and for coin. He has never read the Torah because he cannot see. He's like, I don't know the intricacies of the Mosaic Covenant. I haven't spent a lifetime studying the tradition of the elders. I don't know what constitutes Sabbath breaking. I'll tell you what I do know. Verse 25, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Simple, honest, courageous, faithful answers. I don't know that, but I'll tell you what I know. I was blind and now I see. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you ever sideline yourself from preaching the gospel because you think you don't know enough? Perhaps you're intimidated by someone who's not a Christian who knows more about you than other things. Like, what if they ask me about how we got the Bible, or they stump me with a question about the Trinity? They ask me a question about the problem of evil or sin in the history of the church. I can't talk to my mom, she's too learned in the history of religion. My coworker's too philosophical. One of my good friends are seminary trained in the Ivy Leagues. I, I'm ordinary. Praise God. If you were extraordinary, you'd probably be less useful to God. Time and time again, if you pay attention here in John 9, you see the Pharisees saying, we know, we know, we know. They're blind. Speak honestly and simply. I, I don't know about that. Let me tell you what I do know, what I can't deny. I, I was blind, but now I see. I was self-centered, now I look to the interests of others. I was hateful, now I love. I was a thief, now I give. I was abusive, now I use my hands to serve. I was addicted, I've been set free. I was lost, but now I'm found. And I know how. 
God came for me. He hung for me. He's remaking me. This is not an excuse to be lazy or not to learn. It's a ticket to be honest and to rely on the one thing that can save, which is the gospel. Then this man, as unlearned as he is, gives the Pharisees two lessons. A lesson in theology, a lesson in history. Verse 30, he says, this is an amazing thing the man told them. You don't know where he is from. This is really the problem of the book of John. They will not acknowledge that he's the son of God come from heaven. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We, theology lesson, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout the history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. God doesn't listen to sinners. That means he doesn't hear us. Those who have their faith in him and love him and seek to do his will, God is inclined to listen to them. He's basically pointing to the prophets of old. They were righteous men. They kept the law. Do you really think a guy who can open the eyes of the blind would be wicked? Okay, theology lesson. It gives him a history lesson. This miracle is a step above the rest. He says, we've never heard of anybody opening the eyes of someone who was born blind. It's not a copycat miracle. It's a sign of the Messianic age. The Pharisees, more than anybody else, should have understood this. We heard this in Isaiah 35. We see it in Isaiah 42. Messianic text, I am the Lord, I have called you, that is the Messiah, for a righteous purpose. And I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes. Who is this righteous healer opening the eyes of the blind? It should be obvious. Stephen Lancaster told me in our D group, it's so obvious even a blind man could see it. I thought, that's so good, I'm going to put it in my sermon. <laughs> Here it is. The light of the world steps down into darkness. He opens the eyes of the blind. And all the leaders can think is, can you believe this guy made mud pies on the Sabbath? That is what spiritual blindness will do to you. They didn't miss the Messiah. They never wanted him because they never needed him. They're just as blind, yes, but they refuse to admit it. They're not very pleased to be schooled by this formerly blind beggar, they respond in verse 34, you were born entirely in sin. They're acknowledging now that he was born blind. They're saying, yeah, you were blind because you deserve it, you're a sinner. And are you trying to teach us? We don't need a lesson about God from you. Then they threw him out. Consider how different Jesus responds, how differently Jesus responds to this man, verse 35, when he heard they had thrown him out. He found him. They threw him out. Jesus found him. They rejected him. Jesus accepted him. Once again, Jesus tracks him down, not the other way around. Cast into darkness, the light goes to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come into a world that was waiting for him. He came into a world that was blind, lost, poor, weak, disabled, helpless, hurting, sick. Jesus came for us in our weakness. This is why we worship him with humility. 
Christian worship the Son of God with humility. Jesus finds the man and then he invites him in by means of a question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a term for the Messiah we see in Daniel 7. Of course, this man knows about him and is longing for him. Jesus asks him more personally, have you come to believe in the Son of Man? He responds, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And then Jesus gives the most beautiful response to a man who was blind just earlier that day. Verse 37, Jesus says, you've seen him. Not you've heard about him, not others told you about him, not you've touched him, you've seen him with your own eyes. You see the one who opened your eyes, it's me. He responds, of course, in the only way that's appropriate. Verse 38, I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Literally, he prostrates himself to him. From earlier saying that it was a man named Jesus to a prophet to the Lord himself. Jesus opened his eyes to see his need and his Savior, and he falls before him. Think about it. His entire life he's wanted to use his eyes. He now casts them to the dirt. In humility, he dare not lift his gaze to heaven. That is the right response to grace. Not I deserve more, but woe is me. He comes to the lost and the blind. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you are reminded of the immensity of your need today and Christ's sufficiency. Apart from him, we would be lost and staggering in the darkness. God, in his kindness, unprovoked kindness, has come to us. We have received grace upon grace upon grace. The way to respond is humble trust and worship. Again, the one person we see out of everyone, the neighbors, the parents, the bystanders, the religious leaders, it appears that only one man comes to see the light. Why? Jesus anticipates our question, verse 39. I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do not see will become blind. Jesus, of course, is drawing from this scenario, metaphorically speaking, about spiritual sight. It's a bit knotted. This is what, I'm going to paraphrase what I believe Jesus to be saying. Jesus is saying, I, the light of the world, came to reveal what's true so that those who know they're blind can come to see and so that those who think they can see will remain blind. So that those who know they're blind can come to see and those who think they can see will remain blind blind. Everybody in this chapter is blind but Jesus. They all need his gift of sight. Only one man receives it because the blind man, unlike the Pharisees, was painfully aware of his need, both physical and spiritual. The Pharisees are not. They think they can see. And if you think you can see, you have no need for healing. You have no need for the physician. No doubt many of us have had parents or grandparents who are too proud or too stubborn to go to the doctor. They're sick. Everybody knows they're sick. Everybody but them. Nothing is keeping them from going to the physician and being healed. If you would go, you would be well. But because you don't, your sickness remains. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, they suspect 
he's talking about them. Some of them are there, verse 40. They ask him, we aren't blind too, are we? That is, they're saying we can see. Verse 41, Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. That is, if you would only acknowledge your sin, your sickness, if you would say, I'm blind and come to me, you would be healed. You wouldn't have sin anymore. But because you refuse to acknowledge your sickness, you say, I see, and you won't come to me for healing. Your sin remains. You're still sick. Jesus cannot help you if you do not think you need him. He can't heal you if you don't think you're sick. He can't forgive you if you do not think you're guilty. Jesus, of course, did not come for the righteous. He did not come for those who think they're righteous, rather for those who know they are not. It's as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we would implore you to hear this message. We would encourage you to have a moment of self-reflection today. Think about all that is wrong in the world that you experience and see. It is there, we know, because of sin. All the pain you experience in this life is a consequence of sin. And God, in His kindness unprovoked kindness came here as a man to live on your behalf and to die for your sin to raise from the dead that he might heal you that he might forgive you and all of this healing new life forgiveness of sins it comes as a gift as an undeserved gift he comes to us while we're blind and we're lost he lifts our gaze to heaven he remakes us and he forgives us and we do nothing like the blind man we were sitting there we receive the gift by repenting and believing in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our biggest obstacle to receiving more of Jesus is thinking we don't need Jesus anymore. It's partly why it's so important how you understand the beginning of the Christian life. If you think you opened your eyes, if you think you moved yourself from death to life, it's going to run throughout your Christian life. If you understand that we have brought nothing but our need to God, it should humble us. The second you stop being a beggar, you've inched closer to being a Pharisee. Luther rightly said, Christ only dwells in sinners. What incredible news. Christ only dwells in sinners. Step one and 100 of having more Jesus is recognizing you need him. It's clinging to him. The whole of the Christian life, not just the beginning, is to be marked by faith and repentance. And it should not be hard to remember we're needy. The blind man, after a lifetime of begging, knew he was needy. He woke up with nothing to give, no hope for healing, and up walked Jesus and touched his face. This is the gospel. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we hated him, he loved us first. While we were lost, he found us. While we were blind, he gave us sight. While we were dead, he gave us life. All we can and should do is cling to Jesus in faith and worship. John chapter 9 starts with pain, but it ends in pleasure. You can preach the whole book from the chapter. You can preach the whole story of humanity. From heartbreak to healing, from sickness of sin to acceptance. 
Again, the best stories, they match this pattern because it's what we want to be true. That we move from darkness to light, from hurting to healing. We want all things to be made new, and they will be. John 9 reminds us, Pavey was asking, why is there bad in the book? Why can't it just be good? She's asking better than she realizes. The storyline of Peterson's books is the stories are real. He really answers her question in a note to parents about his book. He says, this is a story about light and goodness and truth with a capital T. It's about beauty and resurrection and redemption. But for those things to ring true in a child's heart, the storyteller has to be honest. He has to acknowledge that sometimes when the hall light goes out and the bedroom goes dark, the world is a scary place. He has to nod his head to the presence of all the sadness in the world. But of course, the storyteller can't stop there. He has to show in the end there is a great good in the world and beyond it. Sometimes it is necessary to paint the sky black in order to show how beautiful is the prick of light. When a child reads the last sentence of my stories, I hope he or she drifts to sleep with a glow in their hearts and a warmth in their bones, believing that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Brothers and sisters, one day all things shall be well. God is making all things new. We will dwell in a land without shadow, for God himself will be our son. John chapter 9 gives us a picture of where we are and where we're moving, from blindness to gazing upon the glory of God in heaven. And it's all of grace. All of our longings for good, for truth, for beauty will be fulfilled in the vision of God in heaven. And it's all of grace. Brothers and sisters, as you experience pain, be reminded of your need for Christ. Trust Him. As your neighbor suffers, go to them with urgency. Share the gospel with them honestly. Let me tell you about a story. And above all, worship the one who found us while we were lost, who healed us while we were blind, who to this day is guiding us home. His grace is amazing. Let's pray.